Please turn in your Bibles now to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. We'll be looking at uh, the first 14 verses this evening since I was up uh, in West Lafayette preaching at the Emmanuel congregation this morning. I decided to take a break from the series on 1 Corinthians. We'll come back to that, Lord willing, next week. But we're going to look at a parable here this evening, and I think one that is very appropriate to the Lord's Supper. We think about what it means to eat at the table with the Lord Jesus. So please give attention. This is the word of God. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said uh, to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. And there we're in the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to his people as we study it together this evening. It's become quite common after a professional sports team or even a college sports team wins some kind of national championship uh, to invite the team to the White House uh, to visit the president. And of course, in the last several years, Uh, This has become quite controversial because uh, it it becomes a story about will the athletes actually come or will the athletes not come? And uh, who will refuse to go to the White House has become more of a story than who actually goes. And it seems that the subtle message is that a particular athlete's presence or absence somehow validates or invalidates the president. And it seems... Uh, to me, anyway, this seems backward. Uh, maybe you don't agree with it. It seems backward, but I think it encapsulates a lot of our culture today, which is that we tend to think about what we're doing as central. So whether I show up or not, that's the issue. Whether this benefits me or not, that's what's critical. Does this make me look good? Does this satisfy my needs? That's what the issue is. And sadly, sometimes this thinking can creep into the way we think about God. So we can think about worshiping the Lord. Is this, is, is this something I feel like doing? Is this something I want to do? Is this something uh, that will somehow make me feel better? We have the, the sense sometimes that maybe I, my coming or not coming is validating God 
rather than the other way around. And sometimes we feel like maybe we're doing God a favor if we come to church or if we obey or if we do the things he calls us to do. And subtly this idea that God exists to make me look good uh, starts to creep into our thinking. Well, Jesus here tells this parable as a wake-up call, as a challenge, but also a tremendous encouragement to people who might tend to be a little bit confused about who God is and who we are. And so what I want you to see as we look at the passage is that God generously offers salvation to people who do not deserve it. And the call for us is to receive God's glorious gift of salvation on his terms, on his terms, and to receive it joyfully. And children, if you want to draw a picture this evening, you could draw a picture of of, um, the servants going out to invite people, or the king who's sending out his servants, or even maybe this man who's in there without the proper clothing at the end of the parable. And listen as we talk about what these things teach us. Well, the first thing I'd like us to notice, if you have an outline, you can follow along, that God generously offers you salvation in verses 1 to 4. So, In Matthew 21 to 22, there are a series of three parables that Jesus tells in the last days of his life on earth. And so in chapter 21, you can look back there in verses 28 and following, he tells the parable of the two sons. And then in chapter 21, verses 33 and following, the wicked vine dressers. And then in chapter 22, this parable we just read, the wedding feast. And these parables seem to all be addressing attitudes of the religious leaders of the day toward Jesus. In fact, if you look at Matthew 21, verse 23, uh, it says, Now when Jesus came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So this seems to be an issue. They're questioning Christ's authority. This is happening after he cleared out the temple and he's teaching in the temple. And so Jesus seems to be confronting uh, their attitudes toward him. In fact, if you look then at verse 45 of chapter uh, 21, you see where it says, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Uh, These guys are very sharp, very quick on the uptake. Uh, They're realizing Jesus is skewering them uh, very clearly for their attitude toward him. And so what we have here in in, uh, this parable, in verses uh, 1 and 2, it tells us the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. So it's a picture of God's salvation and and of uh, being a part of his people. Like a king, a generous king, whose son is about to be married. And so the king is planning a great wedding feast to celebrate this occasion, the marriage of the crown prince. And he sends out these invitations. This would be important Uh, politically. This would be important, right? He's inviting the nobles. He's inviting the the, uh, shakers and movers of his kingdom. That would be the people you would invite to such an event. And so it's important from a political perspective for these people, but it's also important from a personal relationship standard. These are many of these people would want to be in, on good terms with the king. And so it says in verse 3 that the servants were sent out calling those who were invited. So the idea here is they've already been invited. They've received a written invitation sometime before. And now it's come to the day of the wedding feast. 
And so now the messengers are going out reminding everybody uh, this thing that you put on your calendar some time ago, it's happening now. Everything's ready, right? He goes on to say that in, uh, in verse 4. See, I've prepared. Everything's ready for you to come now. This is what he's telling them. And so we understand here that the king is generous and he's patient and he wants people to respond positively to honor his son. And most commentators see in the king here a picture of God the Father and in the son a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the servants perhaps the prophets of God and maybe the early preachers of Christ even like John the Baptist who are going out calling people to come to the son and then these invited guests perhaps the Jewish nation uh, initially and then others after that and this feast obviously is picturing for us Uh, what's ultimately the marriage supper of the lamb that's something uh, heavenly but it's a part of our salvation as we come uh, to be uh, related to the Lord Jesus Christ and it is a very appropriate picture of salvation that our God is like a generous king and he offers a wonderful banquet to his people and this would be like in some sense If the President of the United States, now I realize using this as an example causes people angst. You think in your mind of the best President of the United States that's ever lived. Now imagine that person, whoever that is, has invited you to a state dinner. And you have an opportunity to celebrate a great event in the life of the nation. You see what a profound honor that is. And what a unique honor that is. And we can see how it would be sort of unthinkable to turn that invitation down. And what Jesus is here reminding us is that you have been invited to something far greater uh, than any human leader. For Philip, it could be Queen Elizabeth II, try to translate the cultural translator. But the Lord has invited you to something far greater, far greater, to be a part of of this kingdom feast that celebrates the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry, speaking about this, says, all the privileges of church membership and all the blessings of the new covenant, pardon of sin, the favor of God, peace of conscience, the promises of the gospel, all the riches contained in them, access to the throne of grace, the comforts of the spirit, and a well-grounded hope of eternal life. These are all preparations for this feast, a heaven upon earth now and a heaven in heaven shortly. That's what this feast represents, all of the benefits of being one of Christ's people. And we experience those benefits now, and we will experience them in a more full way throughout all eternity. So God invites you, He invites you to receive this good news of salvation. Secondly, though, we see in the passage a warning not to make the fatal mistake of rejecting the offer of salvation. And we see this in verses 5 to 7. So we see in in verse 5 and 6, they made light of it and they went their own way. They refused the invitation And by making light of it, they sort of treat it as no big deal. 
And in fact, it tells us they just go and do their own thing. One to his own farm, another to his business. Just their ordinary business prevents them from having an interest in the king and in his son. Now let's all be honest with each other here. There are times when you receive an invitation to a wedding, maybe a distant relative, maybe someone you don't know real well, and you think to yourself, I probably should go to this, but it's going to be a couple hour drive. I got to dress up nicely, go buy a wedding present. It's going to take all day. I kind of wish that invitation got lost in the mail. Okay, admit it. It happens at times. Now, we understand that's not a good attitude to have, but there's a temptation there. And, and so Jesus is saying, you know, when you're getting invited by the king, a totally different matter. And when you're getting invited by actually the God of the universe, there's unbelievable disrespect in making light of it and acting like it's, it's just an inconvenience. And again, quoting from Matthew Henry, he says, making light of Christ and the great salvation wrought out by him is the damning sin of the world. That we would just not take seriously what the Lord Jesus has done. Well, it's even worse than that in this parable because in verse six it says, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. it's, It's outrageous. So people who are coming to you, inviting you, honoring you to come to this great banquet, and your response is to beat them up and to actually kill some of them. But realize, as Jesus tells this parable, he's telling the parable to people who have actually done something similar to the Lord of glory. The Jewish people had killed their prophets and beaten their prophets and rejected their prophets when they came to preach a word of repentance and salvation. Herod had killed John the Baptist at this point who came to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know subsequent to this, people killed the apostles and the early disciples of Christ and people still to this day kill those who are inviting others to come to the great wedding feast. And so recognize this is an open attack on the king himself. It's open defiance to the king. And so this is why in verse 7, when it says, when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. This is, this is what they would, the hearers of this parable would have been expecting the king to do something like this. This is, this is a slap in the face. This is spitting in the face of the king. And so it had to be something that's responded to. And of course, the really tragic thing is that the Jewish people actually did this. And in 70 AD, which many commentators think this is referring to, The Roman army came and sacked the city of Jerusalem and burned it down and killed many, many people. And that picture of judgment, which the Bible uses throughout the Bible, is actually a metaphor for the state of all those who would reject the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now realize Jesus invites invites us to come 
He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He invites us. But at the same time, he warns us not to reject the invitation. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. I think that verse is, it's so surprising to us in some ways because it talks about Christ coming in vengeance not for these horrible, uh, terrible sinners who have uh, committed crimes against humanity. That's not who it says he's coming in vengeance against. It, It says for those who have not obeyed the gospel. Those who have refused the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's a solemn warning. It's a solemn warning to any of us who have heard the gospel and haven't come to Christ yet. It's a solemn warning to any of you young people who have heard the gospel and have not come to trust in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this passage told a story of a a businessman and as a pastor Spurgeon asked him if he had taken care of his soul this very very successful businessman and the man responded something like my soul I don't have time to take care of my soul I barely have time to take care of my ships and then Spurgeon goes on to say but he did have time to die which he did about two weeks after that conversation. And this kind of thing happens all the time. Just on Saturday, a 24-year-old NFL backup quarterback who was vying for a starting position had his whole life before him run over by a car. And no time to prepare. And so Jesus is giving us a stark reminder This invitation has gone out, and it's easy for us to say, I'm too busy now, I can wait till later. He reminds us, we don't know that that's going to be the case. And he calls us to accept this wonderful offer that he makes to us. And that's what we see in point number three here. Rather, receive God's invitation with joy and thanksgiving in verses eight to 10. So uh, the king is committed to bringing guests to celebrate his son's wedding. There is going to be a party. In verse 8, he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So, So he's saying, go out. We are going to have people in here who will respond to this invitation. And the implication here... When it says in the first verse, part of verse 10, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. The point here isn't that they're going after notoriously wicked people. It's that these are not the nobility who were invited and who rejected the invitation. These are not, and and as Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, these are not the leaders, the people who should have come, the people who were clearly invited. He's going out and getting anyone Anyone he can find 
and bringing them in. These are not the people that would normally be invited. And many commentators see in this a reference to Jesus' willingness to, uh, to, to uh, interact with tax collectors and other sinners and Gentiles, Samaritans, and the whole gamut. People that had been largely rejected by the Jewish leadership, Jesus went to them and he ministered to them. And this reminds us that this is the kind of church that Jesus, in fact, wants to have. Revelation 7, verse 9, where John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. This is a picture of the church built by Jesus Christ of all types of people, especially the types of people that were considered beyond saving. And of course, this is the reason people like you and people like me are in the church at all. And what's the proper way to respond to such an invitation? Well, uh, verse 10, the second part of that says, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. These people came. And the implication is that they joyfully celebrated. They recognized the unbelievable opportunity to go and eat and fellowship like royalty with the king. And they received that invitation with joy. The year that Amy and I got married, we traveled with her parents in Europe for a little bit. And when we were in some small town in Austria, I can't remember where it was, we pulled into this town. It seemed like everybody in the town was all gathered in one place. And there was music, and there was food, and and there was this massive party going on. And so, um, being the nosy Americans that we were, right, we just kind of wander over there into this scene. And um, the people said, come on, join us, join us. And they're putting food in our hands and they're showing us all these games that people are playing and activities to do. And it took us a while to figure out what was even happening. It turns out it was a paint company celebrating their 25th anniversary. And uh, they wanted everyone to join in the celebration. And so here we are, we, uh, we've never bought your paint. We're never going to buy your paint. Uh, We don't even know where your store is. We can't speak the language, but we're going to celebrate with you. You, We're going to eat your food. We're going to play your games. We made Amy's dad a shirt that says, uh, who said there's no such thing as a free lunch? Uh, One of his favorite sayings, and we finally found him a truly free lunch. But this is the idea that, that we're swept up, in a sense, we're swept up in celebrating the goodness of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and it should cause us to want to rejoice. And we need to be reminded of this, of what he's done for us and what we're a part of. Because I guarantee you, uh, you're going to have a bad day at work. Some of you, tomorrow is going to be a bad day at work. Something's going to break uh, and you're going to have to figure out how to fix it. Uh, you're going to be slowed down by an unexpected problem. These things constantly come into our lives and we forget. We forget what God has invited us to, what God has made us a part of. And and so this parable helps remind you of what he's brought you into, the great celebration that he's made you a part of. And the Lord's Supper is one of the ways we remind ourselves 
of just what Jesus has done for us and what he's invited us to be a part of and what we have in him because we need to be reminded and we need to receive God's salvation with joy and with thanksgiving. And then finally, we need to come to God on his terms in verses 11 to 14. God invites us to come to him for salvation and the parable warns us about refusing the invitation, but the parable also warns us about trying to have salvation on our own terms. And it's very interesting. Some commentators argue that we don't even know what verse 11 to 14 is doing here. Why is this? It looks like it's tacked on to the end of this story. But it's it's making an important point. And, And it is what Jesus wanted us to understand. The king comes in. And he sees the guests, right? He's joining with the guests. He's celebrating with the guests, making sure they're all having a wonderful time. But it says he sees a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And and this has caused the commentators some debate as well because it's not clear that in ancient weddings the the host provided a wedding garment. Maybe this is a reference that these people all needed to just dress nicely to come in, but that given the context that this is the riffraff that they've gone out, you know, third and fourth tier that they've gone to to bring these people in, I think the better explanation is the host trying to eliminate distinctions of class and social standing, recognizing these people would never normally be in this situation. He has provided them with the proper clothing to join in this celebration and to not feel self-conscious as they are here in the king's palace. And so they're to wear the clothes from the, the king, which presumably would be clean and white and appropriate for this occasion. And it tells us here, one of the guests has come into the hall refusing to wear the clothing that the king is providing. And when he's confronted in verse 12, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? It said he was speechless. He was speechless. And of course, this is Jesus reminding us of the state of those who would come to him in their own righteousness, in their own way, and say, hey, you have to receive me on my terms. Uh, Romans 3.19 says it this way, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And that's going to be the experience of anyone who tries to come before the Lord in his or her own righteousness. We will be speechless because our guilt will be so obvious to us. And so it says in verse 13 that the king calls the servants to take him away and cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a horrible picture of judgment. And again, we might say, well, this is awkward. Jesus, why did you add this in? You already had them going out and burning down the city of those who rejected you. Now why this? But I think that's what the point is. It's it's bad if we reject the offer of the gospel. But it's also bad if we think 
we're accepting the offer of the gospel and yet we're doing it in our own righteousness. And this is a constant battle for us. That God loves me more today because I did my devotional or because I've been a good boy or girl, then God loves me more. And we put ourselves on this treadmill all the time where we evaluate where we stand with God based on how well we are performing. And that's not the gospel. And that's not what's pictured here. People coming wrapped in the perfect, righteous robes of Jesus Christ. Again, quoting from Revelation, this time verse 19, or chapter 19, verses 7 to 9, and I read this as our call to worship this evening. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see what's described here? God's people with Christ in glory, clothed in righteousness. And it says here, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. But we know they're not our acts. They're Christ's perfect acts credited to us so that God looks at us through Jesus, our righteousness from him, our sin goes on to him. As it says in Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. That was the verse that finally uh, God used to break Martin Luther to realize that he couldn't ever be righteous enough but in Christ he had a righteousness that was apart from the law that was by faith in Jesus Christ and so this is a solemn reminder we can be in the church and think we're at the party but if we're not resting in the righteousness of Christ we cannot go to heaven J.C. Ryle says about this, all false professors of religion will be detected, exposed, and eternally condemned at the last day. And it is a solemn reminder. We can fool other people, but we cannot fool God. And so our confidence can't be in ourselves. It can't even be in our faith, but it can only be in the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us and who gives us his spirit enabling us to grow in him. And then this passage ends with this verse in 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many hear the invitation. Many hear the invitation and refuse it. Many even come into the church, but don't trust in Christ. They trust in their efforts. They trust in the the machinations of the church, and they're not chosen. And the verse reminds us, it's God. It's God who saves his people. That's where our confidence lies. And the good news of this passage is that if you have believed, if you have put your faith in Jesus, it's because you are one of his chosen. It's because he has first loved you and enabled you to love him. And that's where your great confidence relies. Now, I received something 
fairly precious, I think, in the mail this last week. And it was an invitation from the parents of Katie Offringa to attend a wedding this summer. Who's Katie Offringa? That's the young woman who's marrying Jonathan DeYoung. And having known Jonathan as long as he's been on this earth, I could not be more excited. And that's on my calendar. And I've cleared the decks so that I can be there. But you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not as excited as his parents and her parents. And none of us is excited as Jonathan and Katie are because it's their wedding. And the thing about this picture of the wedding feast is that we're not observers. We're not spectators. You go back to that passage in Revelation 19. We are participants. We are the bride of Christ. This is our party that he's talking about. We're there as the bride of the glorious Christ. And can you see him there welcoming you to come in as his people, dressed beautifully in the righteous robes of our Savior and Lord? This is a profound picture of what Christ does for all of his people. And what a tremendous blessing to have a sacrament given to us to show us some of these biblical realities of a meal in which we're not just observers, we're participants. We're celebrating our Savior. We're we're with our Savior. He's given himself to us, but we're here as his bride to rejoice in his glory. And so recognize Although the passage contains warnings, and they're they're serious warnings about not heeding the invitation, the encouragement here is that God has invited a bunch of riffraff like us to be a part of his family. And it just doesn't get any better than that. It just doesn't get any better than that. God generously offers salvation to people who do not deserve it. Receive, receive this blessed gift and do so joyfully. Let's pray and we'll give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your gospel. We're thankful for our Savior. Lord, we, we realize how we, we couldn't begin to make this stuff up. It's, 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 it's just too good that the Lord of glory comes to welcome people who would never, ever be able to be a part of his family. And you come and you, you, you take out every obstacle that stands between us and you. And you come for us and you love us and you give us your righteousness so that we can be a part of your family. We can celebrate. And even more, we can be uh, this glorious bride of Christ, which is described in the scripture. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for his love. Lord, there are warnings in this passage. We pray for any among us who 
are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, please uh, call us to faith. Help us to see the perilous condition we're in that we might put our faith and trust in you. But for those of us, Lord, who are trusting in you, we pray that you would encourage us to see this wonderful picture of what you've given us in Christ and that we might celebrate with you at this table and as we live our lives every day. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. And now we'll sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 57b. Oh, be exalted, we sing to our Lord, that the Lord would be exalted high. We recognize in here that one of the things we praise the Lord for is his covenant love, his steadfast love for his people, uh, which knows no end. So let's stand and sing our praise to our Savior, Psalm 57b.